Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Farmer Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by a full house of experts this time. Fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Sue Sutter and Brenda Sandberg, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is July 15th, 2022. Among the FDA-related news this week was long expected. We got the emergency use authorization for the fourth COVID-19 vaccine. Novavax finally received authorization for its two-shot primary series, which is the first from a protein-based platform to reach the U.S. market. But it's only for adults right now, and boosters aren't allowed yet. There was also a warning for myocarditis and pericarditis, despite Novavax's arguments that there was insufficient evidence of causation. So there's a number of issues in play here, but I want to start with the product's future. We know that the market for adult primary vaccination is pretty low right now. Uh, I'm wondering what role you all think that this vaccine will end up playing in the grand scheme of things. I mean, I I think that to me, the thing I'm most interested to see um, based on an advisory committee I covered a few weeks ago where um, Novavax, along with Moderna and Pfizer, were presenting data on their vaccines when used as um, booster shots is whether there's, you know, they can show that there's benefit to people who have already gotten an MR, mRNA vaccine series or even mRNA vaccine and a booster um, to boosting with Novavax, either this Novavax vaccine or if if they update it as FDA has asked manufacturers to do to bivalent vaccines um, because they seem like they had kind of interesting data that suggests, you know, there may be a added benefit of people of sort of having this vaccine as their next booster instead of sticking with the mRNA platform. But obviously they have, they need to, you know, FDA was very cautious um, and saying, you know, we really haven't looked closely at the data. It's hard to kind of compare across these different studies because of different assays used and so forth. So, but if they, if they could get data, you know, that would give you a sense that there's advantages to their product um, based on the platform that there's something about the durability or the breadth of the vaccine, which Novavax seems to want to argue. Um, I think that could be interesting moving forward because it does seem like we're going to need, you know, continual updates of these shots. Sorry, but struck me is that FDA keeps playing up that this is another option for a primary series, which it is, but I just question, um, how many people are going to rush out and get this if they haven't already gotten either the J&J or the mRNA vaccines. I just don't know that there's this overwhelming demand among unvaccinated adults at this point for a protein-based vaccine. Well, if you believe the CDC survey, it's something like it's less than 1%, I think, if I remember correctly, of unvaccinated people, unvaccinated adults who still plan to get vaccinated. And then who de- or who said that de- they would definitely would get vaccinated. And then it was like another like 2% said that they're, they might get vaccinated or they're like, you know, they're unsure about it or something like that. I mean, it was definitely was not like in the, you know, high, you know, high demand range, probably depending on low, you know, 2% of a lot of people is still a lot of people, but um, yeah, I agree with you, Sue. I don't, I don't know how many people are left out there who still want to get, you know, their primary series. Yeah, I, I also think, you know, they've said, well, you know, some people may be more comfortable with this technology, but we've had 
you know, J&J &J available for a long time, which is also an older vaccine technology. And, you know, obviously at this point, you know, I think there's been concerns around, you know, the safety, but, you know, even there was a point where, you know, this there wasn't a lot of, you know, prior to the, some of the safety concerns with J&J &J emerging, you know, it wasn't, people had plenty of opportunity to get vaccinated with that. And, and again, even though there's some safety concerns with J&J, &J, it seems like that impacts a very particular population. And still for many people, the trade-off of getting vaccinated would probably make the most sense. So you have to wonder, you know, I think some people who study um, anti-vaxxers are just saying, you know, there's just always an excuse. And, um, some people who say, oh, I would get, you know, MR, it's the mRNA problem is the the newness of the technology is really are not really being genuine in making that comment. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think in all in all uh, spheres, maybe not just uh, in your uh, vaccine uh, hesitancy or enthusiasm, you know, people tend to put concrete reasons behind emotional decisions that sort of kind of they, they feel like they've actually you know, uh, um, made some quantitative um, assessment when they really just were kind of going from their uh, from their gut. Uh, you know, be it uh, you know who they're uh, um, who they're voting for or what they're having for dinner. You know, in terms of sort of kind of the nutritional value of uh, whatever the what might be on your plate or uh, whatever. That's a good uh, um, a good point, uh, Sarah. Derek, I thought your story uh, was very interesting about uh, how FDA justified the UA in part based on the idea that there's a shortage of uh, um, uh, COVID vaccines uh, out there. Uh, um, I know that's sort of kind of part of, uh, you know, how you um, get an EUA, uh, um, you know, out the door, but it's just sort of kind of uh, somewhat ironic that at this stage they're, uh, they're saying that, uh, you know, we still need more because uh, people are clamoring for the, uh, the vaccines. And that was obviously uh, true during the initial rollout of the uh, mRNAs and through with each, uh, um, new uh, age group that gets uh, um, eligible there's sort of kind of that uh, pent-up demand from a certain uh, um, uh, segment of the uh, the population that it sort of kind of uh, um, drops off again but uh, I think this is probably uh, the the point at which uh, that kind of uh, um, initials were kind of wave stops like there's not going to be uh, a whole bunch of people who have been sort of kind of uh, you know uh, deferring vaccinations until the Novavax was available so uh, um, it'll be interesting to see if there's a, uh, um, you know, any more vaccines that ever uh, go the uh, EUA route, or this is the last uh, uh, COVID the EUA inoculation ever. Yeah, it's, you know, I, <clears throat> and and I know when you when you make these kind of broad generalization type of statements that you immediately get proven wrong, and you know that's the beauty of the internet. But I, you know, I wonder if anyone has actually quantified yet. The number of people right now who want to get a vaccine are absolutely 100%. I want to be vaccinated, and there is absolutely no place for them to go to get one. Or you know, I, I don't, I don't know if that's. I mean, the FDA says that's still the case because, you know, for whatever reasons, you you don't have access to a pharmacy, you don't, you know, the the area where you live, they don't have the proper storage. Uh, conditions for the mRNA vaccines, so that's one of the reasons why the protein-based one is is uh, you know and is a is a good option. But I, I I wonder if how many if there is some kind of number of you know 
or estimate of the number of people that who want to be vaccinated, adults who want to be vaccinated and can't be vaccinated uh, because they can't find a place to get it. The other thing that's interesting about this is the pediatric space, and I know they're not approved for that yet, but they're or they're not authorized for that yet, but they're they've submitted that data. And that is one of the actual groups where you aren't you haven't seen a whole lot of there actually is more uptake that can be, you know, grasped there. I wonder if, you know, that could end up being, um, you know, kind of the place where they they hit their if there's a sweet spot where they kind of hit it because, you know, the protein based, uh, you know, uh, formulation is is similar to what a lot of the, you know, normal kind of round of vaccinations that kids have to get and. You know, if, um, you know, wonder if you wonder if parents may be more comfortable with, um, you know, with with a COVID vaccine that's that that way now as well. I, I don't. I'm not convinced that the average person understands the difference between the various <laughs> vaccine platforms. I yeah, certainly wouldn't if I didn't cover this for a living. <laughs> <laughs> it's also interesting because you know I tend to notice in covering you know, drug development outside of the vaccine space that Americans tend to actually, in other areas of drug development, they really tend to cling to the newer shiny right options that have <laughs> less data. And, and yet in vaccines, they make the other argument, which again, I think maybe goes back to Matt's point that some of it comes from a some of people's decisions. It, it, we're putting sort of a certain amount of rationality on some of these choices when there's a lot of emotion and other factors at play. And um, it's hard to know. Again, I think I've seen a lot of criticisms in like criticisms when like public health agencies in the U.S. have been sort of making decisions like kind of using psychology, I guess, as sort of part of the reasoning for how they're thinking about things. And people are asking, well, like, does the FDA or CDC or whoever in the government is making this, like, have they actually, like, researched this? Do they know people are behaving this way for X, Y, or Z reasons? Um, and so, yeah, it just, it's, I think it's hard to know whether some of this stuff comes from real, like, true research about people's behavior and patterns of behavior are just sort of assumptions people are making that could be way off. So yeah, that uh, that that actually is a nice segue for the 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 booster strategy that the, the White House has began kind of discussing again uh, this week. Uh, Sarah, it seems like they're maybe struggling a little bit with how to play this because they've got so many they've got a couple of dueling dueling problems here that they have to deal with. Yeah, so um, I guess earlier this week, you know, there was some news um, that the White House was going to um, push boosters or second boosters. So if you got M mRNA uh, COVID vaccines, that would be like your fourth shot at this point of uh, vaccines for people 50 and under. Um, you know, who are generally considered healthy and don't already qualify for that fourth shot so far, um, basically only people 50 and over or people that have certain health conditions and certain levels of, you know, immunocompromise um, qualify. And then the next day there was a White House COVID call and they um, maybe walked back what they were planning to do there a tiny bit, perhaps because, um, of course, you know, as you know, our listeners probably know, um, this is an FDA CDC decision. FDA would have to, you know, expand the authorizations for that booster and then CDC would have to sign off on it. 
at this point. And, you know, what I thought was interesting about it is FDA um, in a number of meetings that we've covered for the past few months has really emphasized that their thought process and CD, some folks on, on CDC's advisory committee as well, is that, you know, Americans are not going to tolerate um, getting COVID shots every four to six months, um, even if that might scientifically, I guess, be the best thing. We need to kind of pivot to some a strategy that's realistic and actually leads to you know, uptake, because right now we know um, even the numbers of Americans who got their third booster shot is pretty small minority. Um, and so FDA seemed to be thinking like, okay, let's do a big fall booster campaign. Um, you know, heading into fall winter is one of the times when, you know, these types of diseases we know often get worse with the cold weather, with people going indoors. And there's a plan right now to have these updated bivalent vaccines that they hope will, you know, give people added protection against, um, you know, the variants that we're facing now. Um, and so now the White House is coming out and saying, well, you know, we're in another surge. Maybe we need to, you know, and we know vaccines have been waning. A lot of people got vaccinated or, or boosted quite a while ago. So maybe we should be offering more people boosters now. They're, of course, doing this with the reassurance that if you did qualify for a booster now and got boosted now, you should be also able to um, get another one in the fall. <laughs> the question, of course, again, and this is where like I, I was sort of thinking about that, like what is like actual like research based <laughs> sort of coming from FDA or these agencies and what is like sort of armchair psychology, <laughs> I guess, right? Some people like were crit are, have been critical are critical of marks or other people saying like, you know, oh, we want as much access as possible. Don't like make these assumptions and, you know, about you know how people are going to behave in terms of these boosters, but um, it would be interesting to see if they do authorize more shots for people now. Does that keep them as interested in getting another one in the fall, or how do people think about making the decision? Like, do I need two shots? Should I wait and get the for the updated one? Um, so it's an interesting dilemma. And like going back to supply, I mean, one of the reasons, you know, with your Novavax story, which I, where I thought supply was a, a weird argument for the um, going for the EUA pathway there rather than a BLA was it seems like one of the reasons the White House is sort of pretty comfortable pushing more boosters on people that want them now is that um, they seem to have plentiful supply and, you know, some of these doses may essentially get thrown out or expire. If, people don't use them. Um, and then the flip side of that, you know, I think the White House is nervous to some degree as to how much of the updated vaccines they'll have in the fall or certainly how fast they'll have those updated vaccines for two reasons. One is that, um, you know, the, the administration is low on funds to, to purchase and make deals for these vaccines. Um, Congress has not um, been eager to give them more money for the COVID response. And then the second reason is just given FDA's very recent decision um, in terms of the formulation of the vaccine they're looking for and what companies have been producing at risk, there's going to need to be a manufacturing shift happening right now. Um, so and this the companies kind of say it takes about three months to, you know, get a new mRNA vaccine formulation out there. But 
you know, that seems like that's probably like if everything goes perfectly. So how much supply they'll have and when in the fall could be an issue. Yeah, this is a this is just seems like a weird situation. And I'm guessing it's just the timing of it, you know, because we're like right on the cusp of kind of the like you said, like the flu shot type of, you know, season where they start saying, hey, go get your flu shot, you know, for the winter. You know, I I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm nuts. I, I don't I can't see people that, that I can't see people saying, yeah, I'm going to go get another booster. And then in like October saying, yay, I'm going to go get my updated booster. And like, you know, literally people are going to be issued like multiple vaccine cards because there's no more room for all the <laughs> things that they got, all the boosters they've got. It, it, I don't know. I guess, you know, uh, I, I, I just don't see that much enthusiasm out there. <laughs> right. I mean, it really depends. I, I think, you know, the people that are sort of the more booster enthusiasts, COVID cautious folks, right, there's going to be a population that is probably going to get every shot they can if they feel like that's a benefit to them. And then, as we've seen, I think it's something like about 30 percent of the eligible U.S. population for boosters is boosted, essentially. Um, I may be a little bit off. The, I know the story I wrote has, you know, the up-to-date um, numbers. But um, so, right, I guess it's like hard to know what those other like two-thirds of people would do and would we be better off again just trying to at least get them one shot and then what's the best timing for that if like talking about more and more shots just gets them to tune out again this is where people say like you should really have some <laughs> you know like we we would ideally want to not just be making guesses and you operating off some sort of data as to how people might mm -hmm. behave of course i think um and peter marks has stressed this at recent meetings i've listened to you know like some of the problem being faced here right is we're working with a virus that is mutating i think faster than people predicted and perhaps behaving in ways you know they were hoping it wouldn't or weren't predicting in terms of you know they thought maybe we could have a lull in cases this summer would have been nice right and then it gets worse in the fall and now we obviously know we're heading into a surge so that makes it hard for fda to, <laughs> to figure out you know what what's best to do um and you know as peter marks kept saying we don't have a crystal ball we're trying to you know make predictions when we just don't have answers. So part of, I think, FDA's fall strategy was probably designed and thought about before they really realized how bad this summer may end up being in terms of a BA5 surge. Well, and another question that um, I'm, I'm guessing public health officials might have to consider is if you had your choice between just get a shot or wait for the updated one, would you would they prefer people wait or just get a shot? Because if you say get a booster, a lot of people are going to run out and get one right now, and then you risk them not getting the updated one. So do you want, do you say get a shot and I don't care which one it is, or do you say, you know, why don't we just wait for the updated one? It's a, I, I don't know the answer to that. It's an interesting question to, you know, to ponder just because, you know, you probably have maybe one shot at getting, you know, no pun intended, at getting a lot of people the next booster. Yeah, I think it's a tricky question. Anthony Fauci on the call um, with the, you know, the White House COVID response team earlier this week was very much like, 
if you're eligible now, um, and again, he was talking about the population that is already like officially eligible because as I've been emphasizing, there are a lot of people that have never gotten a first booster. There are a lot of people that are eligible for a second booster that are have not gotten it. So, I mean, his message to them is like, if you are eligible now, um, that means your you know protection from your initial vaccination is waning and you these vaccines you know, getting the added shot should protect you from, give you better protection from severe outcomes, you know, death, um, all those things, um, which of course we can do another conversation. Um, you know, they don't, they've only have had real, real world evidence on that. You know, we didn't, they, we didn't have the best clinical trials to sort of make the case for these boosters to begin with, which may be a problem. <laughs> but, um, you know, his message is basically like, you know, we're we're in an emergency situation now. Get the shot that protects you now. Think about the fall later, but focus on your current risk and what you can do now to, um, you know, put yourself in a better situation. That's interesting because I've heard people tell me that their doctors are telling them the opposite. Like, <laughs> don't don't get it. You know, like, should I get a booster now? Like, no, they're updating them. Wait until the updated one comes. I, I've actually I've heard people. I've had people tell me their doctors are telling them that. So, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly interesting. And, you know, again, it's probably problematic that clearly the FDA, CDC and the White House are not all on the same page as this because everybody is not getting a consistent message. Yes, the the co the, the COVID curveballs still seem to be still seem to be troublesome here. We we can't seem to be get any consistent hits on this. So <laughs> the next move here will be interesting, I guess. Next up is that it appears we have some idea now how long Robert Califf plans to be FDA commissioner. Califf said during a Q&A session with the Alliance for a Stronger FDA this week that he was looking at turning over the FDA after the next presidential election. That would give him almost three years on the job, which would be the longest since Margaret Hamburg served nearly six years under President Obama. So for the panel, I wonder how you think the FDA and Pharma will react to this. What what do you think Caleb will be able to accomplish, you know, in that time or at least set in motion? I know, you know, a lot of these projects kind of just start and they need to be started and you can't necessarily get all the way to fruition. You know, I think as you outlined in your story, Derek, the uh, you know, the data collection and uh, data management uh, um, changes seem to be key to uh, um but uh, he's thinking we'll sort of kind of lead to a more robust agency. And uh, you know, Janet Woodcock uh, um, it has long said the same thing in terms of sort of kind of uh, um, how the uh, agency is able to uh, um, you know assess applications uh, more rapidly and make uh, um, post market decisions more uh, um, uh, more confidently. And uh, you know that doesn't seem like uh, an unreasonable goal. Uh, you know projects uh, um, in big organizations. Uh, um, or even through kind of uh, small households always take longer than you might, might uh, uh, think they will. So uh, three years is ambitious, but not uh, um, impossible to at least uh, um, show some results on those uh, um, on those priorities. Do you think that this kind of, I mean, you know, putting a limit on, you know, saying that like saying that, he, you know, when he plans to leave, do, do you think that affects his effectiveness going forward? You know, because I, I don't know if people... If you know that I, I don't know anything about whether or not you know how his uh, his job you know his job performance is being received out there at this point, but you know 
if people want to kind of wait for big changes until, you know, maybe that they know that he won't support or something like that, you know, now they have a, you know, they know how long they can, they can wait or, you know, soft pedal something if they, you know, if they, if they're afraid it's going to get, uh, you know, taken away or thrown out or something like that. I mean, do you think that, do you think any of those issues, you know, come into play? Well, certainly if, uh, you know, your resistance to this, uh, um, uh, approach, uh, that he's, uh, pushing on, you know, data management or, uh, anything else you, you feel like, uh, well, he'll be gone, uh, you know, um, by, uh, um, beginning of 2025 and, uh, who knows who's next. Um, you could sort of kind of, uh, you know, slow walk it and try and wait it out. Um, and to the same extent, if you're a, uh, you know, vocal, uh, proponent of what's going on, you know, how much of your own, uh, you know, personal capital do you want to invest in this? If it's not going to, uh, come to fruition because he's going to be out the door, that's, uh, um, you know, consideration for anybody, uh, um, you're working on these projects. You know, I was thinking about the the thinking about you know controversial things like like the you know the like tobacco you know the the e-cigarette um, you know issues that you know can we drag this out into the courts until maybe you know to kind of you know get them to back off if Caliph leaves. I mean I I don't know if if that would necessarily happen, but. You know, I'm just curious if there were other issues like that that you know potentially you could um, you know you could try and you could try and slow play. Well, one issue that I'm is very uh, interested to see what happens is with uh, the abortion medication mifeprestone. Um, there, there, that was such a contentious issue in his um, his uh, nomination hearings, and um, and now the focus is really on what is FDA going to do to increase access. Um, you know, HHS Secretary Becerra, one of the commitments they ma- he made was uh, that the administration would be increasing access and that would go into FDA's court. And so really, what, what will they do um, to make it easier for people to get access to the drug? And you wonder if something like that could be undone by a, you know, a different administration if, if they came in and appointed somebody who was uh, amenable to that as well. I mean, I think there's always an expectation that you're going to see a new commissioner every four years, given that they serve at the pleasure of the president. I think it's more unusual when you actually do have carryover from um, one administration to another. And it's it's perhaps more shocking when you've got one that resigns in the middle of their term. I think that's um, more of an adjustment that needs to be made. I, otherwise, I think it's sort of expected. That was another issue. I think something I was thinking about was, you know, there are, you know, the the question of whether President Biden would run again is still kind of percolating out there. But, you know, if for sake of argument, he ran and won and would he let Caleb stay in the job or would he, you know, would he try and request that Caleb stay in the job, you know, and so he could be kind of one of the first ones to carry over, uh, you know, or at least, you know, stick around past the uh, an initial presidential term you know, since, uh, you know, Peggy Hamburg did. I mean, I think it's kind of too soon to know um, if, if in theory, Biden ran and won what he'd do because Caleb has, I mean, there's a lot on Caleb's plate right now, right? And we don't really know how he's going to perform. So I think that could be a, a good big factor, you know, in terms of how some of these 
big crises get resolved, like formula, you know, um, the e-cig stuff, some of the stuff were not necessarily, you know, in the pharma sphere. Um, I also, I think we sort of know that Biden had a pretty hard time getting somebody to nominate for FDA commissioner. And I, I do sort of wonder how much Califf maybe based on his comment, like had to be kind of pulled <laughs> into this, right? And like sort of was made, maybe made clear early on, like, okay, I'll take one for the team, but like for X number, you know, X amount of time essentially. Um, and maybe that was sort of a, kid, a condition of him coming back on, particularly I think the comment he made about, you know, needing it a position needing it to be like for people that are younger and thinking about splitting mm -hmm. up parts of the agency and stuff I just kind of wonder if um you know all along kind of going into this Caliph was a little bit like felt like guilted I don't know if guilt is the right word you know like how much he really wanted to come back into this and if that's part of the reason why he's signaling like look I have sort of things I want to get done but you know they're they're time limited too yeah, he had. I, I heard people say that he had talked about, you know, not like feeling like he didn't have enough time the first go around because he had less than a year and then he was out. So, you know, they, they kind of yeah, I think you're right. They kind of tugged at that. Like, you know, do you want to do you want to finish what you started, so to speak? And he said he, you know, he may have just thought, yes, but it's not going to take more than this amount of time. This is a. a, a perhaps too early to speculate on, but, uh, um, you know, if you think that uh, Biden's, uh, if, if Biden gets reelected and there happens to be a uh, Republican-controlled Senate and Califf leaves, who could become FDA commissioner? Because you're going to need someone who would, you know, be able to, you know, sort of kind of thread the needle on, you know, um, abortion uh, medication access, uh, you know, uh, tobacco doesn't have quite the same, uh, political salience is that, but it's still sort of an important, uh, um, you know, issue for a lot of senators and, uh, you know, anything else or just sort of given the, uh, the polarized dynamic in American politics that if you have that, uh, you know, situation of a, uh, um, of a Democratic president and a uh, Republican Senate uh, um, needing to confirm their uh, FTA commissioner, it's a, it's a very open question as to sort of kind of what, uh, um, you know, what kind of person would uh, um, be able to, uh, to get through there. Yeah, especially with the, you know, you, the industry friendliness sort of arguments that, you know, are qualities that, you know, Republicans tend to like more than Democrats do and, and, and everything else. Yeah, it's that that would be that would be tough. You wonder if, you know, if they're kind of setting up who would be the uh, wondering who would be the uh, acting commissioner, because it could be another long stint in that case. Right. They may, they may have to have multiple acting commissioners, uh, um, you know, because, uh, you know, as we wrote, uh, you know, as we're kind of. Uh, 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 Dr. Woodcock was working near the end of uh, um, how long she could uh, um, she could serve before they uh, they found a nominee. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, finally today, we're going to discuss an unusual request from a patient group for a risk management strategy. Brenda, what what is the National Hemophilia Foundation asking for? Well, they submitted a submit citizen petition to FDA, and they're asking that. FDA impose a risk evaluation mitigation strategy as a condition of approval for two gene therapy products, biomarines therapy for treatment of severe hemophilia A and CSL bearings therapy for hemophilia B. And they want elements of uh, to assure safe use 
in the REMS, and that that includes training and education for physicians, certification of facilities that are administering the therapies, and enrollment of patients in a patient registry. And also they want the therapies only to be administered at federally recognized hemophilia treatment centers. And they also asked FDA, in addition to the REMS, to include inclusion and exclusion criteria that were used in the clinical trials on the label um, because this this criteria reduced the eligible population. And the foundation thinks only about 2,000 um, patients would choose these therapies. And it, it is it does seem unusual for a patient, patient advocacy group to request a REMS. You know, I, I did a, a cursory search and... Um, could only find one instance where um, Public Citizen requested a class-wide REMS for dopamine agonists be, to, to deal with their um, compulsive behaviors side effect. But in this case, um, the, the National Hemophilia Foundation is saying that there, un, there are unknowns um, about adverse events with adeno-associated virus therapies, and they don't like mention any specific adverse events they're worried about, um, but they 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 also say that durability of, of the effect is unknown. And and since with these therapies you can they can only be administered once, it's kind of like you know one and done. You if 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 the effect didn't last, you wouldn't have a chance to you know get another different AAV gene therapy. So. Um, so we, it seems like their focus is really just like we, the REMS would provide more assurance that that the therapies would be uh, administered safely. Um, I was going to uh, uh, follow up on that. That's sort of kind of it's a uh, um, an interesting dilemma for a uh, a patient group. You know, if you think that's sort of kind of what they uh, um, what they want most of all is uh, treatments, and here you have uh, some you know potentially promising treatments, but uh, at uh, um, at what cost? You know, sort of kind of how uh, um, it's not sort of kind of the usual uh, um, dynamic that we're used to seeing. Sort of kind of uh, you know sort of desperate uh, you know sort of pleading uh, patients and caregivers at uh, advisory committees. This is a much more uh, you know sober take on sort of kind of what the uh, um, treatment may or may not be able to do for the uh, the population. I think the fact that these are one-time only therapies has, <clears throat> is um, very impactful here in terms of the decision by the patient group to request a REMS. They want to make sure that the appropriate people are getting this. And the other thing is that there are, you know, it's not like there are not treatments um, currently available in this setting. There are, there may be not be ideal, but um, I think that's another reason that they're being a little bit more um, cautious in moving forward to, you know, uh, in not taking the position of everybody should get a gene therapy. I, th I thought it was particularly interesting, the issues around, you know, you can only get like a therapy with this vector once and, you know, how you, like how doctors sort of would have to counsel and inform patients about that seems really significant when you think about, you know, just the limits of what they'll know at the time of approval, most likely in terms of durability and stuff. And also, I I was I, I know there is differences in this disease in terms of you know how many um, males and females are impacted by it. But I, I did find the um, at this point in time when FDA has really been focusing on trial diversity and so forth that they um, the one trial like Brenda mentioned didn't include any female participants and 
um, how that'll play out. Yeah, you also wonder if the all of the patients will go along with this because this idea, you know, because, um, you know, it, it's not unusual for there, you know, for some to be say like, you know, I don't care if I didn't fit the inclusion criteria in the trial. I, you know, I wanted I want to get it. I think it's going to work. I've got no other options at this point and, you know, be, you know, be pretty, you know, vocal of the fact that they're being shut out of a potentially curative therapy, even if it is, you know, one chance and then that's it. Um, you know, so you wonder if they'll be pushed back on on that on that type on that uh, sort of thing, too, as well. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Sue Sutter, Brenda Sandberg, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.